I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan. And together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin to see who gets to party it out in the Kremlin or get shipped off to the Gulag. This week, ruler number two, Oleg the Seer. In Russian, Oleg Vyeshi. Ooh. It's a, that's a spooky name, I gotta say. Well, yeah, we'll go over what it means in a bit. I think it means Oleg the Seer. I'm, I'm guessing that's what it means. Yes. <laughs> but I think you'll enjoy what it actually translates his whole name to. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, how about a bit of a recap from last week? Uh, yeah, why not? You do it because I do not have any script in front of me. Last time, because I said last week, but we do it every two weeks. But for us, it would have been about three weeks. Yeah. Yeah, we record two episodes a month at the same time. So, for future references, we might get... It might take us a bit to actually get to things, um, if you, especially if you want us to do something. Right. And I, I will probably have a tendency to forget what we said last time. For you, it'll be easy because like, oh, you're just binging these. For me, it's like, yeah, this happened a month ago. I have no idea. Yeah, and that's the fun part because you get to forget. Last time, we talked about the founder of the Rurikid dynasty. Remember his name? Uh, it was Rurik. Yes. And just a quick two-sentence summary... He was requested to come from Denmark and didn't do much on the throne of Novgorod. And then before he died, he gave the throne to Alieg and asked him to take good care of his son, Igor, and to give him the throne when he came of age. And I do remember I predicted last time that he didn't do that. We'll get to find out soon. So we will get to find out today what Alieg does and whether he keeps that promise to Rurik or not. Yeah, I'm interested in why he's called the Seer, but again, I guess we'll have to get to it. We'll get to it when we get to it. I assume it has to do with seeing. You know, you'll find out. (laughs) As opposed to his twin brother, uh, Oleg the Blind, who did not see anything. We'll have some people like that in the future. Well, I think it's time to talk about someone we mentioned last episode who is not a Lieg, but they make a comeback in this episode. Askolt and Deer. I, I don't recall who that is. Well, I am giving you a quick summary because it's still part of the recap. Askold and Deard were given permission by Rurik to go south to Constantinople for whatever reasons they had. My thought is that they were opening new trade routes to bypass the Khazars. But on the way there, they came upon a small city resting on top of a hill, which was founded by Ki, Shek, and Khoriv. And then it was named Kiev. Ah, Okay. Interesting. So, is that where the name uh, Kiev comes from? It comes from the brother Ki. Yep. Okay. So, does the um, suffix ev, does that, what does that designate? Kiev. Um, usually, I don't know. That's My Russian is not that great anymore. But Kiev, it basically, it's like, this is the land of Kiev, essentially. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Es- essentially, it's one, like, when you have, like, Romanov... That was also the mm-hmm. name of a land because this is like this is Roman this is Roman's area, kind of. So like Romanov for like the Russian czars is like this is Roman's land or like Roman's possession. Well, I'm just I'm looking up here the etymology of Kiev. The name descends from the Old East Slavic Kievu, most likely derived from the Proto-Slavic name Kievogordu, literally meaning Kiev's Key's castle. Okay, so basically Key's land. Yeah. Well. The, the people that were residing in Kiev were tributaries of the Khazar Cognate, or the Magyars, 
and their location looked pretty good for Ascord and Deer. Um, are the Khazars an empire? Are they a tribe? What? They're, they're a big tribe. Okay. So they're a big tribe in the steppe regions of, like, what is Russia. Okay. And, like, north of the Caucasus. Ascord and Deer took a liking to Kiev, and they attacked the city and took it over with their retinue, and broke it off from the Khazars. Interesting. Yep, so they put it under their own dominion and ruled it while Rurik reigned over Novgorod. Okay, so the, it's it's a project of expanding Rurik's territory. The, no, they were separate from Rurik because they, they told Rurik they were doing something else and they took it as their own. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, devious, delightfully devilish, Seymour. <laughs> and then now we start off with Felieg. Okay, cool. As you know from the beginning... We know that Elieg has the epithet the seer, or Vieshi. And we'll go over the reasons why he got that epithet later. But what does the name Elieg mean? Well, Elieg comes from the Old Norse name Helgi, which means the holy. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and the seer, or in Russian, Vieshi, translates to the far-sighted, the wise, or the holy. Okay, interesting. In Norse, his name would Alieg's name would be Helgi Helgi, and in English, Holy Holy. Well, I mean, it's the, what I know about the concept of wiseness from Norse culture is wiseness was not, it's not the like the distinction between knowing that tomato is a fruit but knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. It wiseness meant basically possessing great or expansive knowledge. So the Norse god Odin. For example, or Odin, some I think is like the Norse pronunciation, but it also in like Anglo-Saxon as Wotan. I think he was wise, but he was possessed of like vast and expansive knowledge, and including mystical knowledge. That's interesting. I'm not good at Norse religion at all, so this is your purview here. I well, I took one class on it, and I watched Doctor Jackson Crawford on YouTube, so. This is what I'm pretty sure is true. I'm not going to cheat by looking it up because, I don't know, I'm a glutton for punishment and I want people to yell at me and correct me on social media or whatever. Foster underscore writing, not Czar Power Pod. Yeah, Foster underscore writing. But I do have Czar Power Pod in my Twitter bio. I don't really tweet about Norse religion or anything. It'll, it just happens to come up in this setting. I mean, it's going to come up for a bit because of the ruse. But anyway, it's, I mean, analy- anyway, analyzing Helgi's, or sorry, not Helgi, Oleg's um, name, it seems to me like, with with the translation, the seer, it seems to me like the person who translated was trying to communicate that he maybe possessed some kind of mystical knowledge. I don't know if his the rest of his biography holds up to that idea. Well, we'll, we'll find out, won't we? Uh, yeah, I guess we will. It's time to talk about Oleg's life. Nice. Sorry. Before, real quick, why was he, um, how was he associated with Rurik before all this? Oh, well, I'm about to get to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's part of his early life. Um, starting off with his early life, we don't know much about it. Because the Norse were, did not care about someone's early life until they actually did great deeds. So we think he's born around 845 AD. But as I said earlier... The Varangians would not put much emphasis on when you were born, but more on when you died, since they could use that as a way to recount all of your deeds. Interesting. Yeah, no, I can I can understand that. 
I mean, we 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 talk all the time about like our birthday, but you know, who celebrates the day they graduated, the anniversary of their graduation from college? I forget when it is. I used to know it's in May. Getting older sucks. Graduating from college, you know, that's that's an accomplishment. Anyways, he what his relation to Rurik is that he was a military commander and possibly a prince or kinsman of Rurik. And then Rurik died and gave him power until Igor came of age. And this is where we last left off. So he's a prince of Rurik. Is he related in any way to him? Yeah, he's, he's possibly a kinsman. Um, we, we just don't know about his early life or anything. Because like, remember, Rurik's kind of like a quasi-mythical figure. Alieg's the, the first verifiable prince of like of Rus standing that we, can, that we have in other sources. And he's, he's verifiable because he just appears in sources reliably. Yes. And you'll find out which sources he'll appear in, too. Okay. Well, it's good to know their source is plural, because a lot of the time there's just one source. And then it's like, uh, good luck deciding if this is true or not, because there's nobody going to corroborate it. Oh, absolutely. And that's what we love on this show, is just being unable to corroborate anything. Alieg's reign started out with a bang. With power of the Rus and Slavs now resting in his hands, he decided to make his mark on Rus in a spectacular way. His predecessor, Rurik, had not completed his promises of going to war and spent more time consolidating his power in Novgorod. The fruits of that consolidation paid off for Alieg as he gathered warriors from around his lands. He commanded his men to prepare their ships and they sailed down the river. Sorry, Rurik promised to go to war? With who? He promised to go campaigning southwards to the Novgorodians and everyone who brought him over. Just a raid? Just a raid. He wanted more land, remember? Okay. If Rurik wasn't going to campaign southward, Alieg was. And he was completing the promise given to the Slavic tribes about expanding their lands that was given to them by Rurik. Alieg and his fleet arrived at the city of Smolensk, captured it, and made it part of their territory. He left the garrison there to ensure his power remained in the city. Then he went further south and came to Lübeck and did the same. These would become important checkpoints for the trip downriver from Novgorod to his final destination, Kiev. Nice. I'm certain he's gonna not be happy to find out that uh, what's his face and who whoever uh, didn't keep their promise of going to Constantinople. Oh, you're you're right along the right track. So, Alieg arrived in the hills of Kiev and looked upon the land that Askold and Deer held in their dominion. He was overcome with displeasure. These two men, Askold and Deer, had taken this land under the false pretenses of heading to Constantinople. Instead, they had the audacity to establish themselves as princes without the express permission of their sovereign. A plan then formed in Alieg's mind. He motioned for his warriors to hide in their boats, and left some behind for reinforcements. Taking the young Igor, he entered the city and approached Zamkova Hora, also known as Lisa Hora, or the Bald Mountain from Slavic folklore. Oh, yes. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. The best part of Fantasia. Well, oh, absolutely. Maybe, well, I mean, in terms of like Slavic references, yes, best part of Fantasia, but the source was pretty good as well. Mm hmm. Alieg then sent messengers to Askold and Deer, with the message being that he was a stranger on the way to Constantinople and on an errand for 
Prince Alieg and Prince Igor. The stranger wanted to meet with Askold and Dir, as they were of the same people. Mm-hmm. Much to Alieg's delight, Askold and Dir agreed and came from out from their fortifications to meet with the stranger. They had no idea what was coming to them. <laughs> I like this story. This sort of like wiliness. You might think in a warrior culture like with the ancient Norse that it would be looked down upon, but this kind of cleverness is in fact pretty highly valued. Oh, absolutely. They arrived to Oleg's location, and Askold and Deer's heart sank when they saw the princes of Novgorod. Hmm. Oleg motioned for his warriors to come out of their hiding locations, and they surrounded the princes of Kiev, and put them down to their knees. Taking out his sacks, Oleg walked up to the pair, and while looking at his blade, said to them, You are not princes, nor even of princely stock, but I am of princely birth. That's a pretty good line. I am pretty sad because I was on these guys' side for, you know, going outside established authority, uh, you know, do their own thing. So, I mean, this is, this is a, a little sad. I was a little disappointed, but that is a good line. Oh, it's great. Oscord and Deer's faces turned pale, and Alieg called out for Igor to be brought out from his location. The young Igor looked upon the duel, and Alieg announced this to be the son of Rurik. The princes of Kiev looked stoically as they knew what was approaching, and Alieg slashed the throats of Askord and Deer. Rip. They plopped down to the ground, bleeding out and flailing around. Then they grew still, and Alieg motioned for his warriors to bury them where they lay. Well, a burial is better than nothing, I suppose. Ah, he was being nice to them, at least. Yeah, he's being nice about it. They don't get a massive funeral pyre, but, you know, uh, n- neither do most people. Or a burial mound, which is which what would be a princely thing. Right. With these fake princes out of the way, Alieg dragged Igor into the castle in, in Kiev and entered. He looked at the location and gave out a small smile, as the location of this city was much more to his liking than that of Novgorod. With its close proximity to Byzantium, trade could occur much easier, and something even more enticing than trade. Raiding. Alieg approached the throne stationed in the end of the room and sat down upon it with young Igor to his side. With that, he announced that Novgorod would no longer be his capital and that he was no longer just a prince of Novgorod, but had become the Grand Prince of Kiev. That is a, that is a great title. Um, what, do you, what do you say that? In, how do you say that in Russian? Veliki Knyaz. Veliki Knyaz Oleg Vyeshi. You know, I was going to say, oh, it probably sounds cool in Russian, but it didn't. So whatever. <laughs> no, it does not. Uh, but the Grand Prince of Kiev is now Oleg. So he basically created this title. And this is why we can say he is the first like official ruler of Rus, because he's encompassing all of, like these like Eastern Slavic lands. Right. It did not take long for Alieg to begin his work in Kiev. He built stockaded towns around Kiev and placed a new tribute onto the Slavs, Krivichians, and the Marians. Novgorod lost their special status due to the capital change, and they had to pay the Varangians 300 hryvnia. Hryvnia is a measure to weigh and count things and is currency in Ukraine today. Interesting. So... I assume that fell out of fashion during the um, reign of the Soviet Union. It probably would have been replaced by rubles, wouldn't it? A while, but even before Imperial Russia and like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. We'll get to all of that in the future, but the Grivny or Krivnia is what is now around. Interesting. So I, that makes me wonder because I think it would be like a move of once Ukrainian got its independence, 
I can imagine thinking, well, we need a Ukrainian, a uniquely Ukrainian currency. Mm-hmm. And then the hryvnia came around because it's like, well, we were the grand princeum of Kiev, so we get the hryv- the hryvnia, the hryvnia. Yeah, that must be a source of pride among some Ukrainians. Oh, absolutely. I, I, can't, I can't see why it wouldn't be. It's like, yeah, we don't use rubles. We use the hryvni. Well, when you've been colonized by Imperial Russia and then the Soviet Union for so long, and then again uh, in 2014 and then 2022, I can imagine wanting to distinguish yourself from your colonizer, essentially. Oh, for sure. However, this thirst for conquest did not just end with Kiev. Everything around Kiev needed to be consolidated as it would serve as his base for further campaigns down south to Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Further expansion down to the south was barred by the Magyars around the Dnieper and Bug rivers and lands to the east. (laughs) Dnieper and Bug. (laughs) I think it's Bug, but I don't know. I'm going to say Bug. Uh, People can correct me later, but I'm going to say Bug because Bug is funny. And they were also barred to the lands to the east of the Middle and Lower Dnieper as they were controlled by the Khazars. Khazars, Khazars, I'll just switch in and out of either one. Aliyek decided that the Khazars were the more important of the two to take on as he wanted to ensure that he could hit the Khazars where it hurt, their tributaries. Aliyek then attacked the Derevlians and imposed tribute on them in the form of furs per person. He then took on the Severians and forced them to pay him tribute instead of the Khazars, and forbade them from giving the Khazars anything lest they face his wrath. The Radomitians decided that they did not want to go to war, and when Aliag sent messengers to them, they decided to pay him tribute without causing a fuss. This hit the Khazars hard, as Aliag took away their paying vassals one by one. Hmm. Interesting. So he's slowly hemorrhaging income, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and he's basically taking more land for himself, because these... Slavic tribes are going into his lands now. All right, so that can only mean one thing, war with the Khazars. We'll find out. This success was going to Aliag's head, and he decided that it was time to conquer the Ulichians and the Tiverchians. These tribes were aided by the Magyars. The Magyars, by this point, had made their way across the mountains and fought the Vlachs and Slavs, they expelled the Vlachs and subjugated the Slavs, and they settled in the land that we now know as Hungary, and attacked the Moravians and Czechs, taking chunks of their land. This war with the Ulichians, Tiverchians, and Magyars came out to be indecisive, and they settled on a white peace. A white peace? Basically, things remain the same. Okay. Yeah. Alieg then decided that with all of his success, he wanted to know his ultimate fate, and met with the Volks or the Slavic wise men in Kiev. He arrived through the forest clearing on horseback and asked the Volks how he would perish. They looked at him and told him, quote, O prince, it is from the steed which you love and on which you ride that you shall meet your death. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> well, the saying goes, those who live by the sword die by the sword, so... Those who live by the horse die by the horse? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I mean, I was going to guess, okay... Horses are weapons of war in this period, as much as they are, you know, pack animals. So I'm going to, I mean, guess that he will die in battle, unless he's the kind of prince that doesn't fight his own battles, literally. You'll find out. Alieg was saddened and became determined to never mount this horse or ever look at it again. 
<laughs> you know, we are on top of the horse. It's kind of, you know, if you're, I mean, if you're under the horse, it's trampling you. If you're on top of the horse, it can throw you off and break your back or something like that. Yeah. I mean, what? just kill the horse. What does he intend to do? Well, he dismounted from his horse and looking away from it because he wasn't going to look at it again, commanded his soldiers to take care of it, but to ensure that it never came into his presence again. It just makes no sense. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing with like, I, I don't know where this legendary trope they're taking it from. I assume it's like, well, I assume it's like Oedipus where any attempt to evade your fate just means you run back into your fate. Although I guess this is also a massive trope in um, Norse mythology as well. As much as Odin tries to avoid Ragnarok, he always just hastens himself further to it. Anyone Again, anyone familiar with um, ancient Norse literature will know that you cannot escape your fate. Well, with most of his borders pacified, Aliek decided it was time to attack the biggest kid on the block, Byzantium. Ooh, what a naughty boy. <laughs> oh yeah, he is. With the migration of the Magyars to the Hungarian plain, Aliek could finally use the Dnieper down to the Black Sea without any obstruction from anyone. Dnieper is just such a funny name. <laughs> Dnieper is, is what it would be in Russian. Okay. In Russian. Yeah, that sounds a little bit cooler, but Dnieper sounds like... Um... Would you prefer I say Dnieper? Yeah, because if you say Dnieper, I'm just going to giggle. <laughs> Giggling's fine. I giggle all the time. Alieg built naval stations along the embankment of the Dnieper to help supply his trip to the ultimate goal, Constantinople, because logistics are important. Yeah, you can't have an army without logistics. Oh, absolutely. He gathered all of his conquered peoples under his banner and marched to the suburbs of Constantinople. He himself decided that he would lead the naval force of over 2,000 vessels he had amassed. His forces met on the shore where he ordered them to beach the ships. Then the raiding commenced. The suburbs of Constantinople were looted and burned. The denizens were slaughtered and many of the outlying palaces and churches were destroyed and pillaged. And the worst was yet to come. Aliyeg's men captured a multitude of prisoners and some they beheaded, some they tortured. Others they riddled with arrows, and others they tossed to the sea to swim with fishes. Sorry, I just... Uh, wasn't Rurik a Christian? No. Oh. Okay. I was very confused for a second there. I could have sworn... Wait, what year is this? 907. Okay, because I know that... Russia's not Christian yet. Yeah, Russia's not, Russia's not Christian yet. But I know that... I know Norway was Christianized in 1000, I believe? Maybe 800. It precedes, like, Rush, like the Rus by a bit. There are definitely missionaries much earlier than... Yeah, Harald Bluetooth, King of Norway, declared declared Scandinavia to be Christian... His, his territory in Scandinavia to be Christian by 975. So we still have some time. Yeah. We're, nine, we're 907. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, of course, that is not really relevant because the Rus are not Norwegians. They're Danes, right? Yeah. They're Danes, but they're just... Yeah, but they're also not in Denmark. They're not under the purview of the King of Denmark. Nope, they're under the purview of the Grand Prince of Kiev. Oh, yeah. Right. So, that whole thing about the Christianization of Norway is completely irrelevant to this discussion. I just was trying to think it through, I guess. I don't know. 
To avoid a ruse onslaught from the sea, the Emperor ordered for the famous chain of the Golden Horn to come up and blockade the ruse from entering the waters around Constantinople. What is that? I've never heard of that. You say it's famous, but I've never heard of it. So explain yourself. Well, I, I, I love history. So basically, in Constantinople, there's two embankments on either side. Mm-hmm. And there's and like uh, and there's like two walls where um where those embankments meet and you could raise up a chain to basically block the bay so people can't come in. All right, makes sense. Yeah, and it was it worked pretty well for them. But Alieg was not put off by this though. He wanted the emperor to capitulate to him. He came up with another plan and told his men to place wheels on the ships and make them face the city. That's so stupid. That's just that is so. Obviously not true. When they got on the boats, unfurled the sails, and waited for the wind. The wind came, and the boats raced down the land straight to the gates of Constantinople as as if they were coming by sea. (laughs) Okay, this area of Constantinople, how flat was it? (laughs) It's pretty flat. (laughs) Okay, because I have heard of this. You can't technically just put wheels on a boat and take it like to the salt flats of Utah. But... I, the, like, I, I find it hard, difficult to believe that ships with wheels on them could negotiate this terrain. 100% flat. Yeah. Land is not water. Water is pretty much always <laughs> flat-ish. But, 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 keep on listening. This terrified the Romans, and they sent messengers to Alieg, imploring him to not destroy their precious city, and offered to give him the tribute he wanted to take from them. Okay, please, I I need to know, do any other sources corroborate this ridiculous story? No. (laughs) This is just just the Russian primary chronicle. The Byzantines don't talk about this at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm... Oh, so the Russians said it happened. The Byzantines said it didn't happen. Oh, so I think I know what's happening. I think I know what's going on here. But I'll get get to this a bit later. So don't... just, Just hold on a second. Alieg then got a twinkle in his eye and halted his advancing troops. The Romans, to treat Alieg as a guest, brought out food and wine to give to him. Alieg stared at the food and refused to partake. Why? Wait. What? Why? You'll find out. Okay. One of Alieg's warriors, named Jeff, was absolutely thirsty and hungry after his day of fighting and took a drink from the wine and bread and fell to the ground, turning purple minutes after swallowing. Hmm. Jeff is our fictional stand-in for a horrible soldier. So Jeff is so Jeff was just one soldier. Jeff is just a fictional soldier we are making up to do stupid things to show our point. Okay. So he's not real, he's just a fictionally particularly stupid soldier. Yep, thank you Totalis Rankium for Jeff. Oh, okay. I didn't know what I have not heard it that podcast yet. Sorry to everyone listening. Yep. So Jeff is basically a very idiotic soldier who does things and dies hmm i thought you would appreciate that yeah i mean i was laughing at the idea that his name was jeff but i didn't realize you weren't serious <laughs> i wasn't serious but um the food was poisoned and the romans went from terror to abject horror as they wondered how the grand prince of kiev could even guess that their food items were poisoned which oh gee i wonder how the romans had a very big tendency to poison their food when and invite people to eat so Word gets around when you do it enough. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. How many Roman empires died of po- Roman emperors died of poisoning? Not that many, actually. Most of them were just killed. Oh, poisoning kills people. <laughs> but like stabbed. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. 
Looking down at Jeff's body, Alieg then demanded his tribute. From the Romans, he wanted tribute for his 2,000 ships at the rate of 12 hryvnia per man. Time for some quick maps. The Chroniclers mentioned there were 40 men on a ship, at, and at the rate of 12 hryvnia per man, that's exactly 960,000 hryvnia total. Alieg made off with quite a ton of gold in this single campaign. And do any other sources corroborate that number? Nope. I didn't think so. It's difficult because we, this is a whole like very difficult situation to like kind of talk about, um, which I did not write out here, but essentially the biggest issue with this ends up being that there are, the Russian uh, like chronicles tends to be very accurate with the information portrays and the person who we are looking at for our information, uh, Vernarsky, basically says, yeah, there's, there's arguments about whether or not this actually happened, but since we have treaties from this whole like period period like we have like half a treaty and it's written in a different style compared to like what we have in like the rest of the chronicles hmm. which shows that it was translated from like the greek translation so like so it's one of those things like we this probably did happen and didn't happen we don't know if it happened or not but the, our historian says it happened and i think it's cool so i think i'm gonna go <laughs> with the rule of cool and say it did happen yeah rule of cool rule of cool but that's not all that Alieg got out of the Romans. He concluded a peace treaty with the Romans and demanded from the emperor an additional sum for each of the great Rus cities and towns. They also had to provide living space and provisions to their visiting merchants and assist any Rus that, were, that was returning home. The Romans agreed since they were just forced to capitulate, but said that the visiting Rus must have merchandise and they had to reside in a certain area of the city. The Rus also mm. had to be escorted around the city and were free to do what they wanted as long as they filled out the necessary paperwork and followed the laws. Uh, yeah. Sounds like a very Viking thing to do. Fill out paperwork and follow laws. Yup, absolutely. Oaths were taken, the Romans to Christ, and the Rus to Ferun and Volos. And the treaty was made. With this work done, Alieg decided that Kiev was calling him back, and he made his way back to his home. How do you spell Ferun? P-E-R-U-N. Perun. Is this... It's like the Slavic... Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Highest god in the pantheon, god of sky, thunder, lightning storms, rain, law, war, for, war fertility, and... Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this would be the equivalent to Thor. Yeah. Because a... Oh, yeah, a hammer and axe is attributed to him. So, yeah, this is Thor. Alieg then ordered for the Rus sails to be made of burkhad, which includes silver and gold thread and for the Slavic sails to be made out of silk. So the Slavs got silk, silken sails, and the Rus got brocade sails, which is make it nice and fancy. While this work was being done, Alieg exited the city and hung his shield up on the gates of Constantinople and ordered his men to do so as well as a sign of immense victory. They then departed the area and made their way back to Kiev. As they sailed up the Black Sea, the Slavs' silken sails were torn from the wind and they decided to keep their canvas sails, as the silken ones were not for them. Alig arrived back to Kiev, bearing great gifts of paws, gold, fruit, wine, and every sort of adornment. And silk. Well, it tore up, so... Right, but it's silk fabric. You can, I don't know, patch it... Well, adornment, you know? Okay. From this point on, Alieg was named the Steer for his wisdom in defeating the Romans. Uh, okay, that's why. Well, I was wrong on why he was called the Seer. I figured he would probably have some kind of mystical knowledge, but I guess that was just wishful thinking on my part. 
Yeah, you know, we're getting to that point where it's like, it's not as fun anymore. <laughs> well, speculation is always more fun than actual truth. Mm-hmm. The years passed, and Aliyek decided that it was time to make a new treaty with the Romans under more peaceful conditions. He sent emissaries, and they were honored with gifts and given tours of the city, churches, the emperor's palace, were shown Christ's relics, and all the riches within. Of course, the Romans used this as a chance to attempt to convert the Rus envoys to Christianity, but they were rebuked for that. The Rus were so astounded by the riches the Romans had, and were dismissed with immense honors and gifts, and reported their success in making a new treaty, which further drew out Rus privileges in the city, including no customs on their merchandise. Customs meaning tariffs. Yep. Okay. It was at this point where Alieg felt relaxed enough to take it easy and live in peace. One thing came to mind, though. That horse he loved. He couldn't stop thinking of it, and he summoned his senior squire and asked what that horse was doing. The squire gulped and told him that the horse had perished. Alieg looked over to the Volk who had given him the prophecy and mocked him, shouting out, Soothsayers tell untruths, and the words are not but falsehood. This horse is dead, but I am still alive. With that, Alieg wanted to see the remains of his horse and commanded his men to take him there. Oh, I know this. I know this story. They arrived and Alieg looked upon the bare bones and skull of his beloved steed. He remarked, So, I was supposed to receive my death from this skull? And then stamped down onto the skull, shattering it. Out from the skull came out a serpent, which sunk its teeth into his foot and killed Alieg within minutes. His <laughs> people mourned for the loss of their great prince and buried him in a mound in either Staraya Ladoga or in Kiev. Okay, so this story about a serpent biting him, I know this is attributed as the death of another figure from history. Of Ald. Of Ald. What? It's, it, it comes from the Norse tale of Ald as well. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is where it comes from. Um, but they give it to Alieg, so I think it's time we rank him. <laughs> oh, dang. Already? Okay. Yep, he's, he's dead! <laughs> yeah, true. True enough. True enough. Let's go. Alright, let's go. Special operations. How well do they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? What do you think so far? What, do you, what, can, what can you recall from this? Well, it's kind of difficult to say because I'm not certain that all of the stories about him are exactly true. The thing about how he managed to... Okay, I do think that the thing about tricking the um, princes of Kiev, whatever their names were, I forget. What are they again? Askoldendir. Skoldendir? Okay, so Skoldendir. Tricking them into coming out under false pretenses, that is a very good... Yeah, that's a very good trick in battle. I'm just going to assume that the stupid story about the wheels on the boats, I assume that worked through pure intimidation. Um, obviously, they'd, they'd still be sieging the city. That is a good solution to a very tricky problem. And the fact that it worked through intimidation, I have to say, okay, that is a good move. So everything's out of 10, right? Out of 10, yep. Okay, are there any other, like, feats? Impressive feats? He did conquer Lubech, Smolensk, Kiev, the Derevlians, and the Severians. Right, right. So he conquered five different cities, basically. He forced tribute from Constantinople, and he did have the Radimitians peacefully pay him tribute because of his, basically, how intimidating he was as a person. Right. So those are his pluses. The Now, some minuses. 
he did participate. He was involved in a indecisive battle with the Ulichians and Tiverchians, who were vassals under the Magyars, because the chronicles do not say more about it afterwards. Hmm. So they wanted to avoid the embarrassment. They wanted to avoid. So it was indecisive. So like we don't know if it if it. Because if he lost, he would have said it. It was indecisive in the same way the Vietnam War was indecisive. I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. So, okay. I mean, conquering five cities and then having two indecisive battles. Uh, that's pretty good. You know, I definitely over five. And forcing Constantinople to pay tribute. Because, like, if it wasn't for that first battle, because why would he be able to get, like, such good things from the Byzantines... In that, like, second treaty, because the second treaty we have, like, written out completely, while we have segments of the first, why would they give him so many good things if he didn't beat them in something? Right. Yeah, so, you know, I think, I mean, compared to Rurik, Rurik basically gave up on the whole continuing to go to war thing, even though he was, I, what did we say his ranking was for battle? Uh, we gave him a total of nine. Okay. Out of 20. Nine out of 20? Yeah. Okay, so like dividing that by two, four and a half, he's definitely above. No, 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 it was nine. It was I gave four, you gave five, it was a nine. Right, I mean an average of four and a half. Yeah. Right. So if I gave like him an average of four and a half, I'd have to give a leg way more than that. So I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him a seven. I think that's I think that's around I wanna give him an eight. Um just because he was able to, like, he had, he commanded himself, like, he led a group of 2,000 vessels. Right. And, like, he took over a bunch of land, essentially, that was, like, he did a lot of good fighting stuff. I would want to give him a 10, <laughs> but, like, he, he didn't, like, but there's still, like, he still had that indecisive battle, which we don't know much about. And they kind of don't go into it anymore. I'm, I'm with an 8, so you're good on 7. Yeah. I was I was initially thinking an eight. I think I'm gonna take away one point for those two indecisive battles. But like I said, it's certainly way more impressive than Rurik, and it's certainly impressive in itself. So that's a total of fifteen for Spetsalne Operatia. Dang, got blown out. Oh yeah, Rurik got blown out. Okay, Ooh. next. Uspiech. Success. How successful were they in running their nation, and what cultural significance did they leave behind? Well, they did make a trade deal. With the Byzantines heavily in favor of the Rus. Yeah, yeah. He in- increased Rus territory and went from a princedom to a grand princedom. Well, I'll say, um, I mean, in terms of wiliness, it's not all that wily to just simply say, oh, yeah, yeah no, I'll give it to your son when uh, he's of age. And they just never do that. Because what the, what's the kid's going to do? What is his, is his father going to do? Come back and haunt him? Give me a break. We, we don't know who's taking over now because he... That's true. All right. <laughs> well, anyway. You'll, you'll find out next episode what happened. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess... So it's not... Anyway, that in itself was not all that impressive, even though he it was, he was... You know, he did... He saw a chance and he took it. He did build a bunch of towns and ports to allow the ease of movement down the Dnieper as a way to supply Kiev. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think we need to take away points a little bit for letting... Um, what was it Olgan? What's his face? Askel and Deer. Yeah, Askel and Deer. So I want to take away points for letting Askel and Deer get the better of him. He was too. Got, clearly, he was too trusting of these two individuals. Well, that was Rurik, though. Oh, it was Rurik? That was Rurik. Okay. Well, he still didn't think like, oh, they're still in Constantinople. Well, he just didn't care. He was too busy consolidating his own stuff. So, so it doesn't apply to Alieg though. Hmm. Alieg, Alieg just killed them. Well, then he's just bad at multitasking. Yeah, Alieg just killed them. So, 
But he still let them get away from him in the end. He never thought, like, once to just check in on them. He never thought, oh, is there something down south? Which, you know, until until he did. Well, it it was basically as soon as Aliyah got into power that he went southwards to Kiev. Oh, okay, I see. So, like, it was the beginning of his reign. He was conquering southwards to control that riverway. Okay, yeah, so with that, with that point, okay, okay, technically, yeah, then he did the right thing in that situation, which was get into power and immediately check that they mm-hmm. kept their promise. Trade deal with the Byzantines, heavily yeah. favoring the Rus, increased Rus territory. Hmm. Yeah, okay, so increased Rus territory, trade deal with the Byzantines, heavily favoring the Rus, reconquering Kiev, moving the capital to Kiev. Basically, making it a princedom to a grand princedom. And Kiev is also very cultural. Well, Grand Prince of Kiev is kind of... Uh, it sticks around for a while. He came up with the... Uh, he Okay, but he came up with the name. Just with the name. Just having the title doesn't count for anything. But it, came, it comes with all the lands around it, too. So that t- right. Grand Prince title associates all the land that he controls. Right, but the, the title didn't give him the land. The land followed from the title. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, cultural. You said you were going to talk about cultural. Well, before I get that, he did build towns and ports to allow the ease of movement up and down the river Mm -hmm. for for his own people and as a way to supply Kiev and himself while raiding into the Black Sea. Cultural, he is, you can see him in Vikings, the show. He's the main antagonist Mm. of season six. He appears in a few movies. Um, He is also written about by the poet Alexander Pushkin in The Legend of Wyzelieg. Which we will be reading later. I didn't want to tell you that because it also would have spoiled his death. Right. And then he is basically seen as like the the first official ruler of the Rus. Okay, I would count that last part as success. I don't count appearing in television or movies or poems as a cultural accomplishment. Because that's somebody else's cultural accomplishment. That's Pushkin's accomplishment. Not his. He was accomplished in that he was recognized as a hero enough to of the Russian people enough to appear as, you know, a character in a Pushkin poem. But, like, I mean, did, was he a great... What I meant, my understanding of the cultural bit when we were making this ranking was that was he, like, a great patron of the arts? No, he was not. He just took over stuff. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But, I establishing Kiev, I mean, I, I don't know who... He basically made it an important He's city. one of the people who helped make it is today by founding it, of course. But, you know, all the all the cultural accomplishments of the city that are located in the city, how much of that can be attributed to him directly? Not, not much. Like, he, he didn't find... He, did, he wasn't the one who founded the city. He was the one who took it over oh, and right, made right, it a big... Right. And made it a capital city for, like, a massive... Like Princeton, mm-hmm. so right, but you can't, yeah, but you can't have all that cultural capital without all that political capital and capital capital, as mm-hmm. in money. True. So basically, not much in the cultural area then. All right. Yeah. So, what significance did they leave behind? What's how successful were they in running their nation? Um, extremely successful. I'm gonna give him a nine. Oh no, I'm gonna give. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on the nine. I don't want to give a ten because, like, well, you'll you'll find out. His like okay, I'm gonna let you know now. The person who comes after him is Igor. He actually uh-huh. gives Igor the throne after he dies. Right. Well, it, go- it comes to Igor because they were co-rulers. And I uh-huh. mentioned that earlier. Um, okay, I didn't know that. So yeah, the promise was kept. Igor gets it. Well, you know, I I guess I judged him too harshly. Well, how old was Igor at the time when he died? When Rurik died? No, I- Igor would have been old, um, like mid 
like midlife basically okay and as co-ruler did he actually have any power yeah exactly so i don't count that i mean i don't know when rus are considered to have attained manhood in their culture i mean there are lots of child kings throughout history so whatever but again it's it's clear if he was old he was clearly way past the point of attaining manhood mm-hmm. so are you sticking with your nine for success Uspiech? yeah i mean i don't i mean i'm gonna judge him for going back on his promise but nobody success has nothing to do with morality yeah so that is an 18 for Uspiech. very nice that is pretty high yeah Wow, this guy's pretty good. Yeah, it's um, higher than... Well, what did we say for Rurik? Because 14. <laughs> 14. For, mostly for finding the dynasty. That doesn't feel right, because the founder of the dynasty... I don't know. Well, it was also because he did a lot of other stuff while he was... like a, Yeah, a true Viking enough. Nerd, true so. enough. So, okay, 18 yeah. for Uspiech. Next up. Compromat. Blackmail. What dastardly deeds did they do behind closed doors? Or... What do they do to make others dislike them? There's two big things I can see. There's Askord and Deer's assassination, because he tricked them into coming out. Mm-hmm. And then he basically let his men like do horrible things in the suburbs of Constantinople. I mean, here's the thing. We are comparing this to all Russian rulers, not from an absolute ethical standpoint. At least I am. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean... If... if by virtue of being kings, I would give them a 10 for compromat or compromat. But since we're comparing it to all other Russian rulers... He's pretty mild. Lots of raping and pillaging and looting. I think that's kind of par for the course for the Vikings, not to mention par for the course for war throughout history. Mm-hmm. So unless all... I can't judge him too harshly unless literally all other rulers were entirely peaceful and committed were committed pacifists or something like that and like people didn't have a it, it, it seems like people didn't have an issue with him killing Askold and deer his men certainly didn't his men certainly didn't so and like the winners write the the, the stories so yeah winners write history i mean personally i kind of like Oscord and i can't remember the names Oscold and deer yeah okay so it did get it right Oscord and deer i like the story of Oscord and deer because i appreciate a rebel Somebody who, you know, decentralizes power, finds something outside um, the centralized purview of authority. So I guess I can give him points for that. I can give him points for pillaging and looting um, all over Constantinople, as well as in general, because war always involves that. Yeah, I was thinking like a two, because it's not like he, it's not like it's horrible. I mean, it is horrible, but it's not like, but compared to like what he would normally do, this is what you happens when... The Scandinavians, the Norsemen, go to war. Yeah. So, like, I'm I, I'm giving him two just for being wily and how he got out and, and mm-hmm. how he got Oscar and Deer out to meet him. Because otherwise, if they said, oh, yeah, Lieg is here, they would not have come out. So... Yeah. I'm so, giving him compromat point. Yeah, give, definitely giving him compromat points for the episode with um, Oscar and Deer. Mm-hmm. So, how many are you giving him? I don't know. Uh, I want to say five. That's a lot more more than me. Yeah, hmm. but you seem you seem to enjoy that story though. So, I I enjoy that story because it's very wily. Yeah, no, I'm gonna I I think I'll stick with five. That seems appropriate to me. So that is a seven for compromat. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Next up we have. Boje moi. Oh my god. 
Or how good did they look? Alrighty, are you ready to see this this man? Okay, so I assume you're sending me like multiple ones, like the last time. Uh, no, nope, you're you're getting just the one picture this time. Okay, just one. All right, let's go. This is what we're basing him off of. Well, he's not a young man in this one. He, uh, let's see. So he has a white beard. He has white hair. Pretty dripped out, I gotta say. He's got a lot of jewelry. I noticed rings on his fingers. Um, unless that's like a mistake on the part of the artist. No, those are rings. Yeah, so he has a blue tunic. Um, he has a red and gold armband. I don't notice a lot of jewelry. Um, I assume that sword is gilded. Mm-hmm. He has a horn with him, as in a, uh, as in, as in the instrument, the horn. And he's got a cape. And he has a helmet that also, I guess, would be gilded. I think it's more of a cap, not a helmet. A cap, okay. Yeah, so I, I gotta, you know, hand it to him. He's pretty dripped out here. Very, lots of bright colors. Um, and, you know, a dark blue patterned cape here. And, you know, he came back from Constantinople with a lot of treasure. And, of course, he was constantly, you know, lots of tributaries. But he, uh, his face, like, he's just scowling. He's In this picture, he's not, like, stoically looking out. He's just, he's, like, got his his chin pointed down towards his chest and he's he's doing the Kubrick stare at whoever is you know meeting his gaze you know I'm not I'm not I'm not feeling a whole lot of points for Bojomoy here how many how many do you feel maybe two or three two and a half just the uh yeah two and a half let's say all right I was gonna give him three because because like yeah like like he's pretty dripped out as you said but like (laughs) he's not like he doesn't look that good, though. It's just like, oh, yeah. he's a scary, scary old man who looks like he's about to kill me. Which, Whoa. you know, he probably would have. Oh, like the seer. I will send you more pictures. All right, fine. You said you would only send me one. I was going to just look up more. No, we were, gonna, we we're only going to do one for a rating on this one. Because this, this is the most contemporary one. Well, they got a guy who looks like, um... Who's the guy who plays Zod in Man of Steel? I forgot. Hold on. Michael Shannon, that's right. In the TV show, they got a guy actor who looks kind of like Michael Shannon. Oh, the the like Kotsuski or something, yeah. Okay, here we um, go. But I sent you two more pictures. The first one is a black and white picture. Why is this guy naked? Because he's, you know... Oh, working. they're nailing... Okay. They're nailing the shield. He's still not a young man in this one. He's not still not a young man. Um, as I said, he was born in 845, so like... Yeah. So he, and this happened in 907, so it's been a few years. He's the guy in the forefront with the bow in his hand. And then the second one, he's the main one on the horse. He's also still old. And then you see the, the Volk, which is the, the Slavic wise man, kind of uh, right there. And you see the sad horse. But still has a pretty much a lot of drip on him, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Let me show you this picture I'm looking at here. Wait a second. I'm not sure if this is Oleg. Because it kind of looks like Rurik. Yeah, th- there's... No confirmation. I don't. I don't know if I trust this source. Whatever. I was just looking at Google Images. So yeah, for Bojimoy, I'm gonna stick with two and a half. Yeah, and then we'll put up all the pictures I sent Brendan, and then Vladichistva sovereignty. How long were they on the throne? Well, we don't actually don't get to rank them on this one because this is pre-generated. Alieg reigned from 879 to the fall of 912, which gives them. 33.67 years on the throne for Dang. a total of 13.40 points. 13.40. Okay, hold on. So Ivan the Terrible is like 55 and a half? 50. 50.25. Okay, 50.25. And Oleg is 33. Point what? 33.67. 
I have this whole complicated mathematical equation doing stuff for this. Okay, but it's more than half. It's more than 25, which... Wait, oh, sorry, everything terrible is 55, right? Or 50? 50.25. So the, I, have math, I have mathematical equations doing it, and it's based off of months. So I'm not doing exact days. I'm doing months. Okay. Because um, we, sometimes we just get, like, weird numbers. But anyways, 13.40 for Vladichistva, which gives them a total of... 58.90 points. Huh. How much was Rurik? 41.43. Hmm. It's not that much more than Rurik, but it is quite a lot. It's nearly 60. It's nearly 60. Now, the question of questions. The most important question of our show. Does he get to party it out in the Kremlin, or do we ship him off to the Gulag? Up uh, Kremlin. It's a pretty easy one for me. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to agree with you on that one. Party in the Kremlin time. Alieg the Seer, you have now made it off to the Kremlin way before its establishment. Enjoy your party there because you were the first one there. So uh, don't drink all the ale. Or all the vodka. And that is a lieg. And, you know, I was going to say we should read the poem on this episode, but we're going to read The Legend of a Lieg the Wise by Alexander Pushkin in its entirety separately because it is pretty long. So this will, The Legend of a Lieg the Wise is going to be like an addendum episode to this. So we will record that a bit later just because it's quite a bit long. So Okay. And then we will... You have time to do that. And then... Everyone, to support us, feel free to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ZarPowerPod. Zar, spelled T-S-A-R. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast host. And do you think we should tell them about the the big news, or should we wait until next time? What big news? The one the one that starts with P and ends with Atreon. Oh, okay. Well, go ahead. We already, we already let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, so we will be starting a Patreon. Well, we won't be starting one because we already have one. Yeah, It'll it's, just... it's going to be the same one as the history of Sarkard Villa, Georgia. Because it is more work to run two Patreons when you can just get the, you know, use sign up for one. It makes it easier on me and on you. And you get to have two bonus episodes a month, one for Georgia and one for Russia. And you can just listen to the ones that you want. And especially for the people who do listen to both shows, it's a package deal because I'm not changing the prices on anything. So, you know, $3 tier just for your basic support. No, you know, you get a you get a shout out. Uh, Five dollar tier, you get uh, a royal name. So when you sign up, you can just tell me, do you want it on Czar Power or do you want it for Georgia? And then I will make one up accordingly. And then you also get access to the bonus episodes. And then on the ten dollar tier, you get voting power. You get access to the Grand Embassy Discord channel because it will be called the Grand Embassy. And then you also get access to bonus episodes and a royal name of your choosing for either Georgia or Sar Power. Um, so those are $3, $5, and $10. The link will be in the episode transcription below. Or not below, because we're a podcast. In the episode description. And if you have any questions, we will be... We will do a movie review first for Zar Power. We will be covering the movie Brat, or Brother, in Russian, which is a Russian crime uh, movie. Ooh. Set in the, the 90s, so... Ah, interesting. Okay. It's a cult, it's a cult film, so we'll, we'll get into more detail about everything there. Hmm. So... Um, anyway, if you want, you can follow me on Twitter, 
at Foster underscore writing. Yeah, follow, which follow Brendan. Actually, I think we already plugged it at the start of the episode, but whatever. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We can double plug. And then um, that's a Dostvidanya Tavarishi from me. And that's a Vlosh Prozdayet Parazita from me. Oh, you memorized it this time. Yeah. Alrighty. Goodbye, everyone. See you soon. Bye. Ba da 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 da